last week, we were talking about Ananias and Sapphira. And this is going to be kind of a two-part series. This is the second half of what we preached on or what I taught on uh, last week. We talked about Ananias mainly last week. And this week, I want to focus on Sapphira. So if you aren't familiar with this passage, um, Ananias and Sapphira were a married couple who decided to sell part of their land and give it all to the church. But what Ananias and Sapphira did is they decided to sell their land, but instead of giving all that they had to the Lord as they promised, they kept back a little bit for themselves and gave the rest to the church under the guise that they were actually giving everything they had to the Lord. And so it was a lie. It was, it was meant to look on the outside that they were giving everything to the Lord, but they were actually doing a little bit, or actually not a little bit, a, a great lie to both the early church and to God. And Peter confronts Ananias on this. He confronts Sapphira later, but he confronts Ananias about this. Ananias lies and says that they actually did sell a certain, the, the, the land for a certain amount, but, uh, and Peter calls him out and said, why did you lie about this? And, and God ended up killing him right on the spot. And three hours later, Sapphira comes in and Peter confronts Sapphira on the same issue. So this morning, what I want us to do with this half of um, this two-part series on Ananias and Sapphira, I want, us, I want to challenge us to, this morning in three very distinct ways. And the first was very similar to what I challenged us to last week, to see ourselves in the person of Sapphira and be intentional not to repeat her error. The second thing I want us to learn from and grow from, I want us to see how Peter models both compassion and bravery in his confrontation of Sapphira. And lastly, I want us to recognize that even though we have leadership, even though we have authority that's over us, both at home and in the church, we need to take ownership for ourselves in our relationship with Christ. So if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I want us to turn to Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Holy Bible, part 2, book 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 11, I'm sorry, 7 through 11. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context on this section of Scripture. Again, the church is in the middle of tremendous growth, and there are those who want to kind of give the appearance of belonging to completely, completely to Christ and giving themselves completely to the ministry, who unfortunately were in fact deceitful and not honest with the church. And this was the case with Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias died after lying to God and after having a selfish heart. His wife Sapphira was complicit in this lie and had the potential, this lie has the potential to cause people to be skeptical of their faith, to be skeptical of one another, and to threaten the unity of the church. So if you have your copy of God's Word open to Acts 5, 7 through 11, Luke writes under inspiration, of the Holy Spirit and says, after, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, Ananias' wife Sapphira, came in, not knowing what had happened. After Peter, and Peter said to her, 
tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So verse 7 begins with Sapphira returning, again, three hours later. Sapphira agreed to the plan of her husband Ananias to lie about the money they received from the land that they sold. So this confrontation she was about to have caught Sapphira completely off guard. She didn't have time to prepare a statement or to think of a well-crafted response to Peter's question. And it was in this off-guarded moment where her heart was revealed. And it's in those moments also where our hearts are revealed too. When someone knows ahead of time they are about to be caught in a lie or they need to defend themselves, the tendency is to prepare one's words very carefully. When most people are caught in off-guard situations like Sapphira, they usually continue in the lie, which only makes it worse, right? Or they become defensive, or they become extremely angry, or in some instances, they just kind of check out and run away from the situation entirely, and they don't want to talk to anybody. Sapphira's method of dealing with being caught in a lie, in an off-guard lie, was to continue in the lie. And obviously, this continuation made it worse. Since you're not Sapphira, and I'm not Sapphira, we need to ask ourselves how we normally respond when we are confronted in either a lie or a situation where we are caught off guard. And it's important to know this about ourselves because Satan can use our actions and he can use our responses in bad situations to make a bad situation worse by using our temperament against us if we are not careful. When we're caught off guard, our thinking is hazy and our judgment is often scattered our hearts begin to, you know, get the adrenaline. It starts to beat out of our chest and as we move into fight or flight. It's very important to know the type of people and situation that kind of bring about or elicit this response out of us so that when we're in the middle of those situations, we don't end up making the situation worse and are able to deal with confrontation with a calm heart. This goes for you, this goes for me, this goes for all of us. Sometimes things catch us off guard when we need to be called out, like Ananias and Sapphira did. Oftentimes, or other times, things catch us off guard when we've done absolutely nothing wrong. A situation in Scripture that illustrates this could be the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Whenever we're faced with off-guard moments and situations, we literally have to do the hard work of handing our personalities over to Jesus and submitting our temperaments to Him. We have to submit our temperaments, we have to submit our dispositions, and our desires 
for self-protection to him. It's one of the most difficult things to do, but it's also one of the most practical and courageous things we can do as believers is allow Jesus to work through us even when we are caught off guard and when we are scared. And we can see in verse 8 how Sapphira's commitment to this lie hurt her and it also hurt the unity of the church. Let's look at verse 8 together. Luke writes, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes. Right to his face. For so much. Peter, Peter gave her the chance. Provided her every opportunity to be honest about how they used the money. Gave her every opportunity as he did Ananias. Instead of Sapphira being honest and admitting how she and her husband were wrong, or at least admitting to her role in the lie, she doubled down in that lie and told Peter that she did sell the land for a certain amount. And it's rather easy to see how she and Ananias are at fault here. And most of the time when this passage is preached, it, it's from the angle of not being like Ananias and Sapphira. Just let's not be like these people. But I, I want us to see something here that is often not considered, and it has to do with Peter. We've seen Peter ask Ananias about the land, and we've also seen him ask Sapphira about the land. But nowhere in the confrontation do we see Peter becoming reactionary with either of them. It's just a straightforward, honest question. He gives both parties, both Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, the benefit of the doubt and asks them to be honest, and he furthermore allows them the grace to speak for themselves. And I think there's an interesting, there may be an interesting reason why Peter does this, why he takes this particular soft touch instead of becoming very aggressive or very just accusatory at this point. I think it's important to remember that Peter knows what it's like to deny Christ. He knows what it's like to royally mess up and have to fess up about what he's done. He knows what it's like to double and even triple down on a denial. Or a lie. He knows the sinking feeling of being caught hurting the cause and the people that he loves the most. Peter knows all too well about committing to a lie out of fear. And he also knows what it's like to feel afraid. He knows what it's like to feel put in a corner and how people tend to react when that happens. So we don't see Peter attacking this couple with accusatory, harsh, or judgmental words. None of his quotes end with exclamation points at all. Even though he's doing the hard work of confrontation, because confrontation is definitely hard work at times. It's hurt, it hurts to be confronted, and it hurts to do the work of confrontation. Even though he's doing this hard work as an authority in the church, Peter still offers them grace by asking them to affirm or deny what is happening here. And Peter's response 
is something I think we can all learn from and apply to our interactions with others. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand here or misunderstand Peter's response. Peter obviously loves and cares deeply about the truth. He's not just being compassionate and letting the truth kind of go by the wayside. Peter cares deeply about the truth. He cares deeply about the church's integrity, but he also values how the church handled confrontation. Peter learned the hard way from Christ the night Jesus was betrayed that if you're going to follow Christ, you don't take vengeance or aggression into your own hands. This is for the Lord to deal with. Remember that Jesus healed healed the Roman guard who Peter tried to kill in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Roman guard that night that Peter went out with the sword and ended up cutting off his ear, the Roman guard was there to arrest Jesus. And Peter thought, Peter thought he needed to take it upon himself and use violence and rage to protect his Savior from harm. And Peter learned that God is the one who both heals and He is the one who punishes. And it is our job to deal with things in a Christ-like way, to deal with things with kindness and compassion and Christ-likeness. And He is the one who punishes. He is the one who takes vengeance because God does those things absolutely perfect when we oftentimes, almost 100% of the time, mess it up. It's our job as believers to care for people, even in potentially explosive situations, which this definitely was one. This is good for us to learn because we rarely respond to others the way Peter does. When we feel hurt, when we feel slighted, when we feel that rage, it often goes from the heart, from the mind, and out the mouth. And we show it with our body language. This is you, this is me, this is just people in general. And it's very difficult to take, uh, and, and, and it's very difficult, and, and it takes serious time with the Holy Spirit to cultivate a, a, a non-aggressive mindset and a Christ-like mindset when we feel we have been slighted or lied to. So Peter asks Sapphira, whether they sold the land for a certain dollar amount. She lies and says the same thing that Ananias previously said. And I want us to notice here, as I said in the beginning, when I want us to note certain things about Peter and his confrontation, I want us to notice how courageous Peter is here. He could have been tempted and maybe even advised by other people in the church, we don't know, to just... Let it slide. Don't work. Don't, it's just, a, they're still giving. Just, just let it slide just a little bit. The, the church at this time wasn't uh, well off. It didn't have millions of dollars in the bank. It didn't have trust that it could just pull from at any point in time. The church wasn't well off. And the amount that Ananias and Sapphira potentially gave even if it wasn't from a pure heart, could have been useful. And it could have done a lot of good. And so you could see probably some of the church leaders going, look, I know it's bad. I know they probably lied to us, but let's, let's work on that later. But let's, let's hang on to it and just kind of work with them. But Peter didn't take that road. 
that, that route at all. He didn't, he didn't just let it slide. And he was really courageous because he probably was risking offending Ananias and Sapphira because he didn't know that ahead of time that God was going to do what he did. He was risking a lot relationally within the church, his reputation. And he might have been risking a lot with the other, other people in leadership in the church. So he was being really courageous with his stance on integrity here. And, and, and the question could have been, why, why risk offending a couple like Ananias and Sapphira, a couple who probably had such means that they were able to sell fields and give it to the church, and apparently they'd still be well off? Why risk offending somebody like that when those funds could help the church so much? Again, just think of all the good that could result from their giving as they later matured in Christ. And I think Peter is courageous in this aspect. That just as Ananias and Sapphira doubled down in a lie, Peter doubled down in his value of integrity and character and Christ-likeness within the church. Not just that we did ministry, but how we did ministry as well. It valued the, the spiritual integrity and character of the members over the money it may have received. Peter had full confidence, it seems. You can extrapolate from this text that Peter apparently has full confidence in the mission of the church, that the mission of the church is solely and first and foremost to reach souls and disciple believers and, and to know that God is able to supply money and resources with the snap of His fingers. But it's for us to be people of integrity and Christ-likeness and character. And if Peter allowed Ananias and Sapphira's sin to slide for the supposed greater good that their money would provide, it would be betraying and undermining the very mission and the purpose of the church itself. And Peter is upset. I think we can tell that tone when he said, why did you, why did you do this? You can, you can hear the hurt and betrayal, feelings of betrayal and, and, and almost anger in Peter's voice, but he's probably more grieved and brokenhearted about them than, than anything, more than he is angry. There's a grief and a brokenheartedness that we come that, that shines through in Peter's confrontation in verse 9. Let's look at it together. Verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, Peter says, how is it that you've agreed together? You just didn't do it one-on-one. -on -one. Y'all got together and planned this. How is it that you've agreed together to test, not just the church, not just its membership, but what does it say he's testing? It says you test the, Holy, the, the, the Spirit of the Lord. So this primarily wasn't an offense against the church or its membership. It was that. But more so it was a, as a test of the Spirit of the Lord. He said, Behold, or understand this very clearly, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. I think this broke Peter's heart unbelievably because as a pastor, I know it would have broken mine completely. And grieving and being brokenhearted over the sin of others I think for, for Christians and also leaders within the church, that's the right response. That we should be grieved and we should be brokenhearted instead of just flat out angry. 
When others have had their lives damaged or even wrecked by sin, our responses should never be, at least from where I'm standing, should, should never be, be given with expressions such as bless their hearts and we need to pray for them while secretly they become cheap entertainment for other believers and are talked behind closed doors saying things like, well, I just knew that so-and-so had a problem. Or, I bet what they did is just the tip of the iceberg. When we do that, when we talk like that about fellow believers, or even non-fellow believers, but, but especially those within our church who are struggling or gone through some really terrible things due to sin, when we do that, even out of earshot of others, even if it's just us talking out loud to ourselves or talking to our spouse, we, we really end up devaluing those who are made in God's image, who need the support and care of their spiritual family more than ever. Because honestly, it can be any one of us in the blink of an eye. And we should never lose that. Just, just by the grace of God, it is not us. And so we, we must be conscripted and feel, feel demanded and commanded to pray and to reach out for them, not to feel some kind of smug religious pharisaical moral superiority here. I think it should grieve our hearts to reach out in love on our brothers and sisters when these things happen, when fellow believers struggle or they fall into sin or they struggle habitually with sin. Our response should be a stark contrast, friends, to the responses of the world when, we, when they see people who fall into sin. And they wouldn't call it necessarily sin. But when they fall into issues where their life seems to be crumbling around them. When we know a fellow believer, when we know their life is harmed due to sin and the terrible choices they may have made, we should, we should see it in exactly the same way we would if it were our own brother or sister, mom or dad or kids who were stuck in that same dark place. Because in reality, they are our brothers and sisters. They are fellow believers in Christ. And we should care for them like family. We should ask ourselves, as believers in the church, when we see things like this happening, what can we do more effectively to care for those who feel the need to hide what was going on in their life. We need to ask ourselves what we could have done different to care for those who felt they had no other course of action but to lie or deceive. The way of Jesus turns us away if we're serious about our faith and we really believe what we say we do. The way of Jesus turns us away when we see people who are trapped in this sin or have had their lives severely harmed and maybe even ruined by sin. It turns us away from a smug, again, self-righteous, pharisaical attitude and toward the compassionate heart of our Savior. Because Jesus did this. When He sees the woman brought forth in adultery, how He lifts her up and rescues her from that. 
He could have affirmed everything that the Pharisees said. Yes, that's scriptural. Go ahead and do it. But is that what he does? No, it's, it's not what he does at all. And I want to make it very clear too. We, we aren't responsible for the actions of others in the church. We're not. But we're definitely responsible, and I'd even say accountable to a certain degree, for how we care for those within the church. How we care for each other. How we care for not only our family, not only our friends, but our spiritual family. Now, I'm going to do a hard right here from that topic to another issue. And it's one of authority um, that's addressed in this passage that some bring up as an objection from this passage. The question is whether Sapphira should really be held accountable in the same way as Ananias because of her lie. After all, wasn't it Ananias and Sapphira supposed to be a Christian couple? And if so, as the objection goes, wasn't Sapphira just submitting to the authority and the leadership of her husband in being complicit in doing this lie to Peter? Wouldn't that make Sapphira somewhat disobedient if she didn't go along with what Ananias proposed? Doesn't that mean Ananias should bear the brunt of God's judgment, not so much Sapphira? That's the objection that's sometimes raised about this passage. Here's my response to that. One, submission to authority and leadership doesn't mean submitting to acts of sin. If you're in a marriage, or if you're watching right now online, and you find yourself in a church with leadership who perverts God's Word by framing submission as a justification to make you complicit in sin, that person is wrong and doesn't understand neither submission or the gospel. Period. I'll say it again. If you're in a marriage or if you're watching online and find yourself in a church with leadership that perverts God's word by saying submission or framing submission as a justification to make you complicit in sin, that person is wrong and doesn't understand submission nor the gospel. Submission my friends, has this not-so-fine print for those who are in authority in the church. And it's that others' submission to your authority as a leader is predicated upon your total submission to Jesus. It's at the heart of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.11 that says, be imitators of me. Paul doesn't put a period after that part, does he? He says, be imitators of me, not period, but comma, as I am what? Of Christ. So the understanding of you imitate me or you submit to me as, as a leader within the church or a leader within the home is predicated upon their submission to the lordship of Christ in all things. Is this perfect all the time? Absolutely not. But trust me, that's the blueprint. And so some, if someone wants to say, you're a Christian, therefore you submit to me, and they're enticing you 
or, or coercing you into sin, that leadership is bad and you do not have to submit to anything that's going to, that's going to entice you or make you complicit into sin. And there are dozens of verses that I could cite here on that topic, but suffice it to say that if you're in a position of authority where people have to submit to you on some level, either in the church or at home, be it if you're a pastor like myself, or a deacon, or teachers, spouses, mom, dad, it's incumbent upon us, it's essential, or whatever heavy term you want to use here, that we submit to Christ. It's not an add-on, tag-on, that would be great if you do this. It's a requirement. And the second response I would give to the objection about Sapphira's guilt would be, two, we can't exempt ourselves from responsibility, from personal responsibility in our, in our, in our actions and our role as, as believers in Christ by saying, quote, we were just submitting to leadership or authority. If we find ourselves in a situation with authorities who call on us to compromise our faithfulness to Christ to sin, our loyalty to Christ trumps all. Actually, our loyalty to Christ always trumps all. Okay, But I'll say it again. If we find ourselves in a situation with authorities who call on us to compromise our faithfulness to Jesus and do sin, at that point, loyalty to Christ trumps all. So Ananias may very well have come up with the idea He may have presented it under the guise of still helping the church with the money they didn't keep. But Sapphira was deemed and held accountable and responsible not only for for the actions of her husband, but because she was an independent, autonomous person who made a choice to lie. Her husband's faith, or probably more accurately, lack thereof, didn't matter in the long term. Sapphira went along willingly with this lie. We don't see any indications that she she resisted this and she willingly lied to Peter and the church and the Holy Spirit when she could have chosen otherwise. Would it have been difficult to say no to Ananias and fess up and be honest with the church? Sure. It would have been very difficult. Would it have taken a lot of faithful Christian conviction to do so? Of course. But she could have chosen faithfulness over loyalty to her husband's plan to lie about their money. But I think there's a bigger question, a bigger question that always bothers me while reading this. Why does Luke include this story at all? It could make the reader distrustful or even skeptical of people who claim to have faith. There's probably a few reasons for this, but one of the reasons I want to highlight this morning seems to be hinted at in verse 10. Let's look at it really quick. And this will be the last verse we look at this morning. It says, Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Notice in the second sentence, 
Not not another verse, but the second sentence of verse 10. Luke makes sure the reader understands that those who are carrying out Sapphira are young. He even says this when, when this happened with Ananias. He made clear that these were young people. At first glance, you might think this has to do with young men probably being better equipped to carry literal dead weight from one place to another. But there might be something else important God is trying to have us understand through this. Ananias and Sapphira's death is tragic, and it was totally unnecessary. They could have fessed up and lived if they had just been honest. But for the young men who witnessed their death and the church who heard of it, this would have lasted in their collective memories and their collective conscience for the rest of their lives. This would have protected the church against any future things like that, knowing full well they have seen and they have heard and they know what God thinks about this and what God does when His glory is compromised through the lies of His people. They would have understand that even through a terrible event, through an extremely terrible event, God is serious about the character of those who follow Him. It's instructive for us to know how God is able to use any situation, be it good, be it bad, be it tragic, or whatever, for His glory and for the good of those who follow Him afterwards. We can think of tons of lessons we have learned from those in our lives who are great examples, but we can also just as easily remember where we've learned from bad examples in our lives how we determine not to live our lives in certain ways or make certain decisions about the people we want to be because of the unsavory or unkind example of a teacher or a leader or family member or boss who spoke to us cruelly or did something that was unethical or unmoral. If God will use whatever He wants to get His point across... Let's make sure that when God wants to get his point across to those in our lives, that we are the good examples and not the bad ones. I would much rather my life, even though I fail so much, I would love and rather my life be a testimony to faithfulness than a cautionary tale for future generations. So in conclusion, as our, as our team comes, I want to ask us some questions, some big questions. The first is, in what ways have you seen yourself, perhaps just in the quietness of your own mind and heart, what ways have you seen yourself or has the Holy Spirit revealed to you the ways you, are, you might, might be a little like Ananias and Sapphira? And are you being intentional not to repeat their error? Two, In what ways do we recognize that even though we have headship and authorities over us in the faith and maybe at home, we need to take more ownership of our relationship with Christ and accountability with the things that we do? This week, it's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. To have us remember Ananias and Sapphira and be intentional not to repeat their error. Let's remember how Peter was able to model both compassion and Christ-like bravery 
in his confrontation of both Ananias and Sapphira. And understand that even though we have headship and authorities in the faith, each of us need to take ownership in our relationship with Christ. And this morning, if you need to take more ownership, and you, you find that this morning, I really, I really need to get my life right with Christ. This, this altar, this front is open for you to pray, to give your life over, to pray with me if, if you feel comfortable doing that, or to just make it right, right where you're sitting. Jesus he- hears you just as well from where you are too. Don't let this opportunity to either know Jesus or to get some things right in your life with Him. Don't let this moment that has been specially crafted out to pass you by. The Holy Spirit's knocking on your door. Let's answer it this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you.